Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. How can education and employment preparedness be fairer? In other words, how can we create education equity? You see, we seem to be programmed to like, support and promote people more like us. Being anything other than normal is a bad thing especially when we're kids. My social impact pioneer today, Mohan Sivalog Anathan, knows a thing or two about challenging the norm. And now he's tackling the challenges of education inequality head on. Mohan is a first-generation American. He's navigated the expectations of a South Asian immigrant family. He's become the business leader, the CEO. And then he pivoted to support others. He is now leading a national movement in the US of young leaders in the fight for education equity. I expect from our conversation to hear personal and yet pragmatic advice. So whether you're a student, an educator, a business decision maker, or simply just interested, I hope there will be something in here for you. So let's open up the conversation on education inequity so we might be able to close the gaps between us all. So Mohan... Delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And um, I wanted to start this conversation because you are really on a mission to fight a number of kind of equity issues, but we're going to zoom in a little bit on education to start with. Can you tell me a bit about what has brought you to this point of your career and your life and like just paint a bit of a picture for us? Absolutely. Uh, Well, I appreciate the question. And you know, something that I'm really grateful for is there's a recognition. I, I feel like I, I I receive more and more from folks who I know, who I trust, who will say something along the lines of, hey, Mohan, like, you're able to be really authentic in, in who you are um, as a leader, as a person, as a father, et cetera. And, and I say, thank you. You know, thank you for, for seeing that. That means a lot. And that did not happen overnight. It was a long journey and an oftentimes painful journey for me to get to this place where I feel like I can authentically lean into my voice, my identity, my story. Because if you go back to when I was a student in elementary school, middle school, high school, and beyond, um, hopefully that makes sense for international audiences here. So basically, when I was just younger, <laughs> you know, in, in the US, you know, my, my parents were South Asian immigrants and just phenomenal people, heroes in every way, worked incredibly hard to be successful, to make it to the middle class, to create this platform for me. Now, if you understand the immigrant experience, especially the South Asian immigrant experience, oftentimes this driving energy for the next generation is one of stability. Like you need to be financially safe, you need to be educationally safe, professionally safe. And like that comes with a certain wiring uh, and so for me as a South Asian, at the time, young male, that meant like, all right, your pathway is you're going to be an engineer, doctor, or lawyer. Like, that's, that's basically it. And like, I was really into math. I was really into science. And so it was engineering. Like engineering was going to be my thing. 
And you know, like I, I worked at it and, and I did well in school. I you know graduated and went to a good university. I majored in electrical engineering. But what was increasingly uncomfortable and difficult for me was this feeling that certain paths and ideologies and frameworks were being imposed on me. Like I had to be a certain type of person. I had to communicate in a certain type of way. Here is the formula for success. And it, it wasn't working for me. I think for one, I was discovering other aspects of what lights me up that weren't quite the engineering path. Like I minored in sociology in college and I, and I loved learning about the impact of cultural and social and political institutions on society and on individual people. I read about the civil rights movement in the US and that filled me with curiosity and, and fire and agitation. I started to volunteer for political causes. So I had all these different inputs that were telling me, hey, like maybe this engineering corporate path like isn't for me and it's being but it's being forced on me like it feels like it's being forced it's being imposed and like and that's through no fault necessarily of my parents but i think like the education system is one that just oftentimes boxes people in and i think that's a massive massive problem like off the bat and then if you go a little bit deeper to issues of equity i think you see that that issue exacerbated and multiplied in communities of color LGBTQ community where I, I, I just see time and time again, folks who are so trapped by these old broken ideologies and philosophies of, you know, what is success going to be, but then also with a much lower ceiling where, hey, like, you know, you've got folks who are out there saying, you know what, like, maybe you're not going to go to college and, you know, that's fine. Maybe you should just go do some trade thing. Like, you know, just limiting the potential of young people at far too early of an age. And it's not what young people are looking for, but it's what's happening within these different systems. Um, and that happens far more often in communities that are historically marginalized versus those that are not. In those communities that are not, like it's it's like the sky's the limit, right? Literally and metaphorically. And like oh, this, the ceiling, like it doesn't even exist. Uh, and you have the layered on supports of college counselors and after school supports and enrichment activities and and the arts and career exploration and paid internships. You have all, like, we know all of the right stuff to be able to unlock possibility. And yet it is systematically held back from far too many communities. And we know which communities we're talking about, like in the US, you know, Black, Indigenous, communities of color, immigrant communities, LGBTQ community. And that is unjust. And so in many ways, I'm fueled by my experience of feeling like I was suppressed for so long and then seeing that this is a systemic problem in, in so many different communities and contexts. Uh, so like that, that requires work. Um, that requires awareness uh, and storytelling to, you know, for folks to see, hey, there's something that is profoundly unfair in what's happening in the education system right now. And I think there's a higher order aspiration, which is what if you flipped the equation and instead of having the system, so to speak, and certain people in power imposing these rules and limitations on folks, what if we actually pass the microphone and the platform to young people for them to express what the future could look like? Because when you do that, you start to hear about a far more hopeful and aspirational and empathetic future. It's a future where folks are truly connected with one another, where they feel seen, where they are heard, where they can be entrepreneurial. And, and I believe that is a future that people want to be a part of. Um, it's something that I'm honored to be able to collaborate with folks on to, to try to bring to life day in, day out through my work. And just wanted to pick up there you you sort of talked a bit about fairness and the sort of unfairness at the moment seems to be getting a pushback i mean or even flipping the kind of sense of where the unfairness happens and what is it 
from your experience, but also what you're seeing in the work you're doing, what is the problem like? And, and how is this playing out? How do you see this kind of progressing at the moment? There are a few ways to be able to look at that, you know, this, this notion of fairness. I would say, for one, if you look at U.S. culture, so much of U.S. culture and ideology throughout the course of the country's history is based on this idea that there could be a certain level of self-determination, where if you work hard, if you show up the right way, you can be successful. And not just successful, you can actually be immensely successful. Like that is, that is the American dream, right? Now, if that were fair, that, that opportunity would be equally distributed. But that's not the case. Like the, the metaphor I oftentimes think of is, let's say you're driving on the highway and you, you're telling someone, uh, just work hard, or in other words, you know, just drive faster. If one lane is completely clear and you can go 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, you have another lane that has potholes and construction barriers and traffic, like, is that fair for the two cars? And in the U.S., in the education system, that is, that is how things are designed, uh, where you have inequitable access to resources, to opportunity, to people who can serve as mentors and allies for you. Those resources, those people, it's not equally distributed across the country. And, and there's a massive problem in that. And you know, if you unpack it a little bit more, um, you look at, for instance, you know, recently, a lot of the controversy that happened around the affirmative action decision um, for higher education. And there was this idea that, hey, affirmative action is not fair. So without even getting into the need for repairing structural harm, you know, generational structural harm, which affirmative action practices, uh, you know, when done right, are intended to be able to address that. What I wonder is like, where is the fairness in something like legacy admissions, where in some, some colleges and universities, simply by virtue of you know, being related to someone who is an alumni of the university, you get preferential treatment for admissions. Like, where, where is the fairness in that? That is not fair. That is not based on merit, not in any shape or form. And so we see this happen in so many different spaces where some folks who have access are then given additional catapults, additional springboards in order to be successful. And hey, you know, I want folks to be successful. So, so great. And can we do that actually for everyone? You know, can can we really lean at this idea of liberty and justice for all? Uh, but that is not consistently applied in the country right now. And and so how do we do that? What do we do about that problem? And I wonder whether also while you're talking, whether it is applicable to other places as well, because clearly fairness is something that's a problem in lots of different locations. Right, right. Uh, well, I, I think as we all know, like there isn't necessarily a one size fits all, you know, when you think about addressing systemic and generational inequity um, in any country. What I will say um, is I believe there's a massive opportunity for us to change the conversation um, and to change the narrative. Because I believe what far, happens far too often is we either get caught up in the complexity of, hey, you have all these different systems and, and structures and institutions, and it's too hard. You know, it's, just, it's too hard to be able to change it. And what also happens is we get trapped in zero-sum games where, hey, if you support some folks, then somebody else is going to lose. And I believe both of those pieces are false and fictional. And I believe they can actually be reconciled in actually like some similar ways. So when I think about changing the conversation and changing the narrative, where I would love to see greater investment of time and energy, where I certainly want to be more active and involved in this work is, can we actually talk more about individuals being able to thrive and therefore communities being able to thrive? 
So instead of stopping at, hey, you know, it's too complex and it's too hard to be able to change an entire system. Well, maybe don't think about the entire system. Maybe think about the 10 children who are in this classroom. Maybe think about the, you know, 100 children who are in this school. What would it look like if they all had individualized success plans? Like if we actually sat down and talked with each child to understand what is it that lights them up? What gets them excited? What is, what is their vision for their future? What makes them really curious and want to show up at school? What are the things that maybe don't? And then build an ecosystem of support around them to then say, all right, now how can we help you to be able to achieve the, this vision, to be able to achieve these goals, as opposed to what usually happens, which is someone else is going to make the decisions somewhere else. And then that young person has no role. They have no voice. And, but what I have found is not just in the US, but all across the globe, and when I've had the privilege of being able to connect with folks uh, in, in, in South America, in, in Europe, in Africa, in, in Asia, is this desire for agency and entrepreneurialism. They, they were, we're talking about a young generation here that in many ways is unlocked. Um, they're not trapped by so many different frameworks, like, you know, ones that I had to contend with, you know, when I was growing up and even prior generations, they see possibility and they see opportunity. So what would it look like if we fuel that by saying, hey, I'm going to meet you where you are. I want to understand your unique context, your unique strengths, your unique opportunities, and let's build your plan. Like, what is your plan for the future? And I think that people would respond well to that, which kind of brings me back to what I was mentioning before about narrative, you know, narrative and culture, because I think we know that all of us individually, like that we want the same thing, right? Maybe not all of us. Look, I can't speak for all the billions of people on the planet, but so many of us, we don't necessarily want someone else telling us all the time what to do and who we can be. Like, no, we want to be able to feel like we can, we can be, be able to shape some of the circumstances of our present and of our destiny. And what if we built more cultural will and commitment around that idea? What if that was the nature of the conversation that we were having, whether it's respect to education or or politics or, or anywhere else you might be? I believe that would actually be uplifting and wouldn't look like so many of the narratives that exist right now, which is zero-sum game, speaking to complexity, speaking to negativity. But then oftentimes it just winds up perpetuating the status quo. And um, the podcast is run and hosted by Business Fights Poverty. So and as you set out this conversation, so many of us do our educating in order to get good work, good employment. How can employers step up to this? What's their role in terms of making sure that, again, kind of going back to your fairness piece, that we create that fairness, that we have that space where those who really want to and the meritocracy can step up and step in? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, I love that question. Um, then there, there are two recommend recommendations that I would have off the bat. Uh, for one, I'll talk about my own experience as a hiring manager, and I've hired dozens upon dozens of people directly or indirectly over the years, mentoring folks, you know, like that. It's one of the biggest responsibilities I have as a CEO of an organization. And what I'll say is that for just about everybody on my team, I don't know what colleges or universities they went to. I don't know what they majored in. I don't know what their thesis statements were. I don't know their GPAs. I don't know their standardized test scores. What I know are the folks who have strong critical thinking skills. I know the folks who can take a complex problem and analyze it and come up with a radical transformative solution. I know the people who are able to rally and inspire other folks to get behind that solution. I know the folks who are effective project managers, written communicators, oral communicators. So in other words, in, on the business side, the quote unquote business side of things, we know what those skills and competencies are 
that help our institutions to thrive, that fuel today's workforce, that fuel today's economy. But that is not always how the education system is built. The education system, a lot of times, is built on memorization. It is built on standardized test scores. It's built on sometimes reducing people to numbers as opposed to those skills that are truly necessary in the workforce today. And so, what I would love to see business leaders do is actually try to apply some downward pressure on educational institutions and actually be a part of conversations where they're helping universities and helping. High schools and others to be able to actually reimagine their curriculum, reimagine how they think about assessment, reimagine how they think about individualized success plans, so that a success plan is not just based on, "Hey, here is my standardized test score, and therefore I get admission to college." Actually, my success plan looks like I engaged in these five different activities, which developed my leadership, my problem solving, my my collaboration, and my communication. You know, some of those really vital、uh, skills that once again we need in the workforce. So I think there's an opportunity. For the business sector to be able to do that, and then within their own institutions, it's ensuring that those skills can be nurtured and and really be able to flourish and grow. Because that idea of the the suppression of voice and unique skills and capability that happens in the education system, it happens within business organizations too. Because even even if we know that you need certain skills in order to be successful, sometimes we can't help but sort of regress back to. You know what we thought was going to be the most effective blueprint, which creates a very homogenous experience for folks, and that's the reason why you had, in many ways, the Great Resignation over the past few years. It's why you had so many people who were, you know, fueling in the U.S. What was a, a literally a record quit rate? Like since it started, it was started being measured a record quit rate. People who were leaving their jobs who said enough is enough because you thought you were signing up for something, and then you came into the workforce, and then you realize actually this is not at all what I signed up for. I'm not able to thrive. I don't feel like、uh, I'm being purposeful in what I'm doing right now. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. So I think that 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 is a place for business leaders to lean in to recognize that you have these really uniquely, remarkably powerful and capable folks coming into the workforce right now. How can you meet them where they're at and understand their language, understand their capabilities, and then you know and and water、um, water those seeds. You know, water, water those trees, water those plants,、um, so that they can be able to thrive in that ecosystem. Wow,、oh, amazing! Great advice. And then I'm going to stick with the advice piece. You then you just talked a little bit about some of the skills and capabilities that you're looking for in your workforce. If you were,、uh, you do get the opportunity to、uh, share your advice, really, what would be your advice? Your essential tools that young people potentially listening to this, or indeed anybody who's at that. Crossroads in their own careers or their own journey. What would be your advice to them? So, my advice to folks. So, first, starting with、uh, with young emerging leaders, and you know, this is actually great timing. This conversation, I just had the privilege of being able to connect with folks who are participating in a fellowship program、uh, in New York City, who are getting exposure to different career paths and contexts in in the public affairs space. And you know, we talked about you know the notion of a leadership journey and and you know how you're able to grow and. I would say the the biggest thing I would say to folks is to be curious.、Uh, be curious about yourself. Be curious about what's around you.、Um, so being curious about yourself, what that means is trying to be conscientious around like what are those things that really light that fire in you. When you're sitting around, maybe you're sitting on the couch and you're you're daydreaming, and you know something feels like kind of warm and exciting in the back of your mind or in your heart. Like what exactly are you doing in that situation? Like like why does it feel that way? 
that's something I thought about a lot early in my career. You know, I, I had I had some tough moments in my first few jobs because I felt like I wasn't really fitting in. I felt like it wasn't for me in many ways because I was, uh, you know, being urged to do this by by friends and people I really trust. When I started thinking about like, what is, what is showing up in my daydreams? I started seeing more and more playing this role in fueling social movements, playing a role in activating folks to, to raise their voices and change-making ability for social justice. And like, how was I doing that? Well, I was building strategies with teams and um, I was helping to shape new organizational culture. I was able to speak, you know, do, you know, having conversations like this. So like I had to lean into that curiosity about myself. And then at the same time, there's a curiosity of what's happening around you. And what I tell folks a lot is, look, like you, you, you don't have to play the game, but you should probably know the rules. And I think it's really important at, for, for young leaders coming into the workforce to understand, hey, like here's how systems are set up right now and how cultures are set up and how did they get to that point? Because I think that understanding of those dynamics can help folks to then be able to make smart and informed decisions and choices and not feel like you're always reacting. And so I think that's really important. And then, you know, I think that the advice to organizations, you know, based off of what we're talking about here, it's, it's recognizing that there is, there is data, like, you know, just profound, a profound array of data. I actually have some good friends who've actually written on this that point to how important purpose is within the workplace how important it is for companies to be able to succeed and, and for their metrics to be pointing in the right direction and for their workforces to be able to thrive. Now, purpose is not something that you can force on somebody, right? You can't just say, hey, be more purposeful and therefore they're going to be more purposeful. There are certain things that lead to folks being able to be more purposeful. So if I just let, as one example, in terms of the work that we do at our turn, um, something that we've invested a significant amount of time and energy into is uh, not just developing, but fully socializing and immersing ourselves within a theory of change as an organization. Like, why do we exist? What is it that we do in response to why we exist? And what is the future that we want to be able to create? And then, like, how does everybody connect to that? Because the reality is that not everybody in the organization is going to be working collaboratively all at the same time. Some days are going to be harder than others. Some days might feel more monotonous than others. But when you have that purpose and understanding, how do I connect to that theory of change? How do I know that what I'm doing today is both highly important and valuable right now and is highly important and valuable for something that we're driving to in the next year or five years or 10 years, that, that lifts energy, like that lifts capability versus, you know, well, this just feels monotonous and that's it. It's, it's just monotonous. I feel like I'm just boxed in. I feel like I'm just on the hamster wheel. I don't understand the purpose of what it is that I'm doing or I'm not bought into that purpose. That is where, you know, the best strategies go to die is when people do not have that connecting and, and belief and inspiration around the purpose. Uh, so I think it's just really critical uh, for business leaders to be able to take that time in considering like, you know, what, what is a purpose that everybody feels like they're bought into, um, that they're excited about and they can see themselves in. And for anybody listening, there's a great podcast we've just released with Hamza, who's part of Reckit, and he talks a lot about connecting your personal purpose with the purpose of an organization or indeed backwards and forwards. You could argue that he potentially even shaped his organization's purpose. Uh, so do take a look at that podcast or listen if you haven't already. Um, but yeah, back to this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Mohan. I, I think really resonates and, and leads me nicely into the, the, my next kind of question to you, which is, I feel remiss if I didn't ask you about what you're seeing that others perhaps aren't. What are the kind of trends? What are the What's the movement of the winds that you're seeing that, um, that perhaps haven't been sort of taken heed of yet? 
uh, yeah, I, I love this question. And, you know, this kind of pushes my thinking too. There are a few things that come to mind. One is that the environmental pressure right now uh, just feels in many ways contradictory and conflicting. And so if you look at, for instance, the trends in the business community, you have you know, this increased pressure to move away from DEI initiatives. And that's because of political pressure, cultural pressure. You have a lot of companies who are you know, sort of shrinking back. And you know, this has been validated in so many ways with DEI workforces being cut down and investments being cut down. Fewer mentions of DEI within public earnings reports and statements, et cetera. And there is ample data that, that indicates that a more diverse and, and equitable, inclusive workforce that is built on belonging is higher performing. And so it, it's really strange that those two things exist separately and that they're sort of in conflict with one another when really the, the most effective organizational leaders right now are leaning on DEI from a moral standpoint, an ethical standpoint, and also a business imperative standpoint. But they're being positioned as being conflicting right now, which really sets all of us, all of us um, up, to, up to fail. Number two is we know that there's still so much social unrest and, and injustice across the world right now. And we know that young people are best positioned uh, to be breakthrough messengers and advocates for change. Uh, and what we all need to recognize is that that activism from young people is not a guarantee. And I think it's been taken for granted in many places. I think certainly in the US, this assumption that young people are just going to turn out and they are going to solve the problems that have existed for generations. But no, young people are not just signing up that way. They're not just blindly making choices just simply because adults are expecting them to do it. They hold us to a high bar. They, they expect better from our institutions. It's not just like, okay, you get out of the way and we're going to solve it. But hey, like, how can we actually do this together? And I think that requires collective work to be able to build that type of investment for young people to show up, to maximize that change-making ability that we know is so transcendent and so transformative, but we can't just reflexively count on it. Um, and I think that should be a really important wake-up call to leaders all across the world. Like Young people are not just going to reflexively choose your workplace just because they did 20 years ago. They're not just going to choose your political party just because they did even two years ago. You need to put in the work and you need to be willing to collaborate. And then last but not least, you know, something that like, speaks also very close to home for myself is I think folks are looking for more dynamic ways to express themselves in, in their leadership journeys, in their personal wellness journeys. And, you know, it's not just like through the work in itself. Like, I think there is a greater desire for expression through community, um, greater expression for or greater desire for expression through the arts, for instance. And, and I think folks are really hungry for that. And I think that's another one of those things that we find whenever there's some environmental pressure, like you look at schools, for instance, you have environmental pressure, you have budgets that need to be cut back. One of the first things that get cut is, is an arts program. But like, you know, given the just the bombardment of oftentimes negative information that folks have right now, like we can't just strategize our way out of everything. Sometimes it requires a piece of poetry. Sometimes it requires a community, you know, restoration practice and circle, sometimes it literally just requires rest. So we, we really need to be able to expand the aperture um, for how folks need to be able to express and, and to be able to heal themselves and not just assume that we could just be grinding and hustling forever. Yeah, it seems a massive change that we have been on in the last, I don't know, decade, because it sort of started just before COVID, but definitely that 
nobody talked about wellness or, you know, your mental health or anything like that. And now you hear people who I wouldn't even ever have thought about, like my dad, you know, 70 something talking about his mental health. And you're like, really? I mean, God, you you shook your hand and called your father, sir. (laughs) Massive, massive trend and massive change. And that's sort of rounding up our conversation a little bit now, Mohan, although I could absolutely sit here and work and talk through with these things with you for goodness knows how long. I wanted to ask you, what's sort of next for you? What are you most excited about and, and what are you working on? Well, you know, I would say this this conversation is right on time for me <laughs> in, in so many ways. I'm just, I'm so grateful. And also, hey, just, you know, just uh, just recognition and applause to your dad. Uh, too for just that that recognition that he made for himself, which will then also have a positive impact. I would I would hope and imagine for you and your family. So I I truly believe that there isn't really an idea shortage that exists in the world. We can always generate more innovative ideas, more transformative ideas, and and we can and should do that. But really, the challenge exists, and are we going to have the the emotional, physical, spiritual power represented by people to be able to see through those ideas. Uh, and I think there's potentially a crisis that could be on our hands um, because you have a younger generation of folks who are asking the right questions, who have all the skills, have the capabilities, can realize all these ideas, and they're dealing with massive environmental challenges and pressures and so many reasons why they just, you know, they they might be be inhibited in terms of what they're able to go out there and do in the world. And so when I think about what's next for myself, it's considering how can I potentially be a part of a solution there? How can I help more folks to understand what is actually happening with our folks who are on the front lines? You know, the the emerging workforce, you know, those those college students, those early activists, what's actually happening? Like sh- helping to share and illuminate their stories. And then what can now what can we do about it? And I'm thinking about, you know, what is maybe the direct support that I can provide to, to some of those folks so that they can have the allyship that they need in order to be able to go out and do incredible things. And then also looking at nonprofit organizations and, you know, political organizations, corporations, how can I potentially help them to be able to reimagine and rethink the way that they are interacting with and supporting the folks who are coming into, into their organizations, uh, into their cultures and um, and, and I'm really excited about that because I feel like even though we're talking a lot about about young leaders, I think in many ways, like, you know, maybe like the example of your dad is is a testament to this. But I think so many of us are having this this reckoning right now. It's not just confined to folks who are in their 20s. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 41, I'll soon be 42. And I consistently think about, you know, just as as I'm kind of stepping into what feels like a new beginning for me, a new chapter in my life, like this, this this reimagination of what it means to be to be thriving emotionally and physically and, and spiritually. And I think there are other folks who are in their 40s having similar considerations and thoughts. Folks who are in their 50s, who are in their 60s, who are, you know, starting to deconstruct what brought them to this point and and how can they maybe do things better for themselves um, and and to be able to live those more thriving and purposeful lives, which will then have like a great multiplier effect with the people around them. So you know, I'm I'm in a discovery process trying to figure out how to do that. I think it's some, you know, probably some combination of consulting and coaching, doing more creativity, as I mentioned before, you know, more art-based projects. And uh, I'm excited to see where that goes. Ah, oh, three cheers to all of us, whatever our age. We've all got, <laughs> we're all on the journey, aren't we? Mohan, we thank you very much for joining me today. 
And for anybody listening, I will make sure I put um, Mohan's LinkedIn and uh, links into the chat or the words that sit alongside the podcast so that you can go and find out more, get connected. That's what we're all about. Uh, but also, if you do want to follow up on Hamza's podcast or indeed join us with the Equity Summit, uh, so that's Business Fights Poverty's Equity Summit, that is the 6th and 7th of March. We would be delighted to welcome you and, and have you there. But for now, Mohan, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Much appreciated for the conversation. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.